podcast is a conduit of hope, safety, and trust. And our purpose and vision for our lives is to be in service to others and to support them in understanding that they matter. Through open dialogue and conversation, through sharing ourselves, our lives, insights, perspectives, and experiences, we will offer solutions for any challenges or adversities you may be faced with. And we want you to know that you can come to us for support, guidance, and inspiration. This podcast is sponsored by Laguna View Detox, a state-of-the-art substance abuse and alcohol detox and residential program. We are not affiliated with any 12-step program. If you or a loved one is suffering from addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you need detox or residential treatment from drugs and alcohol, please contact 888-448-1884 to speak with a specialist. And now, with the Recovery Media Podcast, your hosts, Jim Grant and Louis Iacona. Hello again. Welcome to another episode of Recovery Media Podcast. I am Jim Grant. Louis Iacona is here as usual, of course. What's up, Lou? What's up, Jim? We have a very, 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 very special guest. Uh, Danielle yes, Sweeney Curson is a dear friend of mine. Uh, we've known each other for 15, 20 something years. Most count. Uh, for, yes, yes. We'll, <laughs> maybe we'll figure it out uh, specifically. But uh, former colleagues, and um, I love her very much, and very powerful woman, very, very. Uh, independent inspirational you'll get to you'll get to hear her story and how she impacts the world and you know a mother and um and all that good stuff and and the the other interesting thing and fun thing about this episode is that is that uh lewis and danielle know each other from from many moons ago so we'll we'll uh disclose that as well so Danielle is was born and raised in Belrose, New York. Graduated the Mary Lewis Academy in 1997 and St. John's University in 2001 with an undergraduate degree in psychology and social work. I think she's overqualified for us, Lewis. <laughs> yeah, I think so. In, in 2003, uh, graduated St. John's and got her master's degree in rehabilitation counseling, where she then earned her certificate as a rehabilitation counselor, followed by a licensed mental health counselor. And she also worked at, that. that's our, our uh, what ties us together, the three of us, is her career at Outreach Project Development in Brentwood, New York, and that started in 2003. And after completing her internship, she got hired full-time as a vocational counselor. And she expresses being very fortunate to have held a variety of positions within outreach, including vocational coordinator, aftercare coordinator, house manager, clinical coordinator, and then director in 2012. And then the reason that she left there is she got pregnant. So very looking forward to hearing that. And uh, she hasn't been the same since uh, in more ways than one. Mm. And she'll let us know. <laughs> Don't even know where um, to begin with that. <laughs> she's got a daughter, Isabella, who is a spinning image of her. Hopefully we have some stories about that little firecracker. Mm. And 
then she didn't have enough fun and excitement in her life. She decided to get pregnant again and had twin daughters, Madison and Charlotte. Girl gang and over there. About, oh, about a year and a half ago. So there's too much too much else to to share about uh, about her. So I think what we'll just do is let everybody hear from her. So hello, Danielle. Hello, Jim. Hello, Lewis. And that there were so many varies in that introduction that I think at that point I was like, oh, my God, I'm freaking nervous now. Can I say freaking? <laughs> Freaking's all right, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. You know what? Like, I, as if I ever had a filter. But um, I am so honored that you asked me. And then, of course, the self doubt comes in. Why me? What's so special about me? And then you give an introduction, and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I should recognize that I had a couple of accomplishments in my life. Um, but we always like to put ourselves down. Um, <laughs> so hence is why I became nervous. But anyway, um. I'm I'm just very fortunate, and Lewis, uh, it is it's just unbelievable to see you. You're a miracle. Um, Thank you. So many years and moons ago. Yeah, so, I couldn't even grow a beard back then. Although I probably wanted to. Oh. I was thinking that this morning when I was looking in the mirror, I said, well, "I got this little scruff going on." This was non-existent when when I first met you. So no, and if you had like it was like like little hairs that you guys would maybe like try to connect the dot to, <laughs> and like it was so over the top. That it was like you need to shave, otherwise you're gonna like wear a fake mustache, and you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, to the young man, father, person in recovery you are today, it's like, I mean, I want to hear all about you. So I'm like, forget me. Can I interview you? Uh, Go ahead. Listen, take it in whatever direction you want. It's your it's your day. Uh, and you know what? To to be part of this, just to be part of, I just try to pride myself in being in the moment, you know, as Jim would say, like being in the solution, but you know, life wasn't always about that, uh, for me at least. And while, you know, listen, I have a great family and, you know, upbringing and you would think like, what went wrong? Well, like addiction has, uh, no prejudices against where you're from, what you look like. And, you know, so my, my bumps, my story started, uh, you know, I guess I would say like early teens because the experimentation started at that point, uh, you know, with drinking and the curiosity. And I came from a family, Irish, a Catholic, you know, father lined up the alcohol, like on the ledge of the basement going down. So like, I loved having to like take care of the cats that were downstairs because I would just sample each one as I would go down the stairs each night. Even if I didn't like it, I just had to have it. But I was that kid. I was one of four. I am one of four, uh, three brothers that they didn't really have to worry about. Like, Danielle does her schoolwork. Danielle is, you know, a perfectionist. So she's like over the top. So like she would never do certain things. So when I started to feel like lost, uh, you know, nothing I ever did was enough, but not for anybody else, for me. Uh, that's when that's when I wanted to just run or hide. Um, you know, I did well in school. I played sports. And I graduated high school, but prior to graduating high school, I was fortunate enough to take part in a student exchange program. And I lived in Berlin at 16 years old first, like six months. Uh, I was a junior. The moment I got on the plane and I knew I was like overseas, I ordered a drink. 
and because I knew it was legal. And I can remember the flight attendant at the time being like, can I see your ID? And I was like, uh, you're in headlights. And he's like, no, I'm just kidding. You can, you know, you can have a drink. So, you know, what did I know at that point, but why I wanted to just numb already, you know, it didn't come until like later on, you know, I had that experience. It was amazing. I had experiences of, of drinking, but still fearing my parents finding out meanwhile, they're in New York and I'm in Berlin. Um, needing to please needing to have approval uh all were the story that i told myself over and over again have to look good have to you know um make the cut so to speak played on a german softball team um couldn't understand the coach knew how to pick up a bat and swung and knew he was like oh she can play um so you know played so i my life was full of amazing experiences and yet i still wanted to hide i graduated high school decided to stay local went to st john's and tried out for the softball team was a walk-on i received scholarship and it was at that point you know where my drinking more so took way because you know now i've had these accomplishments no one's gonna guess or second guess me with anything like that you know um i had even started you know prior to getting like an internship and working into the college years you know i wish i blacked out to be honest with you but i remember all too much drinking at 15, 16, 17, hanging out with friends, getting into cars with guys I had no idea. Body image was like horrific. So I thought like, you know, I have to throw myself at people um, so that people would like me or accept me. And then if I did that, I had to drink more. If I drank, the other stuff came. So it was, it was everything. It was like just, it was just this disease, this cycle. Um, but then I would have periods of sobriety I didn't drink all the time. I didn't drink every day. And so I couldn't have a problem. I don't have a problem. That That's not me. But the things I did, the shame that I developed, the the hole in my soul that was relationships progressed, um, you know, always like had boyfriends and things and then started to realize like, this doesn't fit for me. Something, something doesn't match for me. And in college had my first experience where I was with another female and I thought like, oh no, 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 no. I now I need to punish myself more. Now I need to drink more and now I need to hide more because I am one of four, three brothers. I'm the only girl, the expectations. I am going to be a complete failure. And so alcohol allowed me to hide. I, I hid, I escaped. I was anyone, um, I was anyone else but me. And if I drank and passed out my bleachers, sorry, St. John's, um, and, you know, hmm. recovered and then showed up at the bar and everyone was like, Sweeney, how are you even here right now? It was like, you know, I was a superhero. I was a superhero in one degree and the other degree I was reckless. I was, um, I drove under the influence. You know, I had all those yets. I have all the yets. You know, I didn't have a car accident. I didn't have a DUI. <clears throat> I never felt my drinking really affected anyone else. But I, um, I damaged myself to the point where, like, I, I didn't want to live. I, I didn't want to. 
I didn't want to exist, to be honest with you. And <clears throat> so self-injurious behaviors developed. Um, you know, I sought therapy. I wasn't, um, I wasn't ignorant to that. I knew that, you know, getting help would be the best thing that I could do. And every time, you know, maybe you shouldn't drink came up and I was like, yeah, no, I don't think that's the issue. Um, I'm depressed. Yeah. You know, this is what I have to deal with. And then <clears throat> I would like struggle with like these migraines and these headaches. And it would be like, well, maybe the drinking, I'm like, no, I just have to get wine with no sulfur. And I can remember like it, like investigating this and coming out of the liquor store, like <laughs> this no sulfur one. I'm like, I have solved all my problems. And, <clears throat> you know, that continued for a while. I earned my internship at outreach. I didn't have a problem. I didn't show up drunk. I didn't show up drinking. But to this day, I will never forget the session that I was having with a client who said, you ever just have that feeling? You look at the clock and you're like, when's the next time I can have this drink? And I thought, did I say that out loud? Did he hear me say something? Like, how did he know I was thinking that? <clears throat> and I had like a case of like, these like wine cooler things. Sometimes I was like, that's what I chose. Um, although I prefer hard liquor, but it was, you know, I can remember going, this is not gonna work for me. I'm not going to carry the shame. All I want to do is help these kids and I'm going to carry the shame and embarrassment and then do the complete opposite. Like now I'm going to be a complete hypocrite. I had hospitalizations, um, for, you know, suicidal ideation. Um, you know, I, I was, I was at a, such a loss. Like I felt like I was falling into an abyss. And yet if you looked on paper, I guess, you know, accomplishments, awards, recognitions, high GPA. Well, she's got it all together. And so, like I always say, like never judge a book by its cover. You know, my inner soul was lost, scared, um, shamed, embarrassed, felt like a failure. And, you know, I, but I was not, all I wanted to do was help the next person. And so, all the kids that have told me that I helped save them, they helped save me. And, you know, sometimes I can come off so honestly tough and stuff. And I just had a moment that I had to like, you know, Jim will get this, this like, couldn't swallow for a second, about to get emotional. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't get emotional, you know, I'm Irish. <laughs> uh, um, <clears throat> we hold it in. That's what happened when I broke my nose but when I was like 10 or 11 and my father was like, come on, come on, you have a playoff game. Like drive the, wipe the blood off, get in there, play that game. And I did. I, I played the game with my broken nose. Um, you know. So Danielle, let me, let me jump yeah, in. Yeah, jump I want in. You to, I want to, I want to go back a little bit and thank you so much for, for sharing, you know, open and vulnerability and jumping in. And I, I would like you to, cause remember, you know, our, our point here is to to give hope and inspiration to yes. others that are listening. So and I'm sure there's 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 already people out there up to this point that that get you and mm. and want to hear more. So so to, to get into more detail, to even see if there's anybody else out there that has experienced what you've experienced or understand. Mm. So you talked about having a good childhood and a good family. And me and Lewis talk about it a lot in terms of, um, you know, the 
the connection between trauma from a childhood equating mm-hmm. to leading us to addiction. And that trauma right. could look, you know, look like a lot of different ways. So the the self-loathing and the I'm not good enough and, and mm-hmm. all those things that you that you that you battled with and had were there were there messages were there events that that directly equated to you know questioning your worth oh um absolutely you know i you know unfortunately had experienced sexual abuse early on and i didn't really realize that that that's what it was because it, as it was involving a family member and you know that was what i thought was like normal and it wasn't until I was replaced by friends of mine as I got older that I was like, I'm not good enough anymore for this. Like, you know, I think that that, that message rang true in my head. And so while I knew this was not okay, why am I not the person anymore? Why is it my friends? Why is it, you know, and that was very difficult for me to digest. But then at the same time, because then I learned early on, you know, I didn't understand certain things. Obviously, I was a child, um, but being sexualized, that was a message throughout my early adulthood. And so that using myself or abusing myself or um, allowing others to take advantage of me became like a message that if you do that, then that means I'm good enough, I'm pretty enough, I'm attractive enough. But it felt so awful that I had to drink to either try to forget it or I had to drink in order to endure it. And so while these secrets, you know, were only as sick as our secrets existed in my life, I also had a hard time coming to terms with it because I didn't want to shame the family. I wanted to maintain, you know, that dignity. But if I didn't let go of this, then what what good was it? Um and so through through therapy and through divulging this and, you know, expressing things to my parents that had occurred and it was difficult for them to hear, but then it was like a big puzzle piece and the, the, the pieces came together and it made sense for me. And it really wasn't about everybody else accepting it. It was about me having closure. And so I had to relearn how to appreciate myself, respect myself so that others would you know, people will say like, oh, is that what made you gay? Like, no, nothing made me gay. Like, I, you know, that's where I choose. I don't like labels to begin with. My old therapist used to say, you're not a ketchup bottle. You don't need a label. Like, who you love is who you love. And so while mm-hmm. I could fall in love with, you know, if this man treated me right, absolutely. But that that emotional connection, something was missing. So for me, it occurred with a woman, but I could easily divert my attention if I felt not good enough because of stuff that happened in the past with men. Um, and so that trauma was a huge part of what, you know, impacted my drinking, my behaviors, um, you know, the self-loathing. And I did a lot of work in therapy and in, in recovery. Uh, I went away to Florida when uh, I was in my early 20s. And um and I figured if I was going to go to a treatment, I might as well be with palm trees. And, but went away in doing some research on a program to help with professionals because I wanted to, you know, see how could I better myself as a professional and deal with this trauma. And so did a lot of um, intense therapy, EMDR, um, 
you know, through working the 12 steps um, to come to a peace and a, a, around all of this. And I was able to achieve that because from that moment on, I never, you know, I returned. And while my life around me here did not necessarily change, people still drank, people still, if I allowed them to, would sexualize or take advantage or be inappropriate or have no boundaries. It was up to me to set those. And I was able to be in that solution and, you know, find my voice. And in finding my voice, I found me. And I maintain my sobriety until this day. Uh, God willing, about 13 years this month. And um, Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, trauma doesn't have to be this catastrophic uh, incident that occurs because it occurs on so many levels. So for people out there that are listening, you know, may not have had to have that type of experience, but that was just my story. And again, no one would ever think that because what looked like, I look, it was like I lived with the Brady Bunch. You know, mm. family dinners, vacations, the whole bit. Yeah, and oh, we like talk often about, you know, that they're not, you know, you said um, being, you know, addiction isn't prejudiced. You know, right. it doesn't pick and choose because of a certain demographic, right? Right. Um, you know, our story is somewhat similar. Grew up in Massapequa, you know, um, one of four, uh, athletic. We really kind of outshined a lot of people with my personality. Um, as if you remember, you know, I was um, I was a charming, you know, and I could be a chameleon in any situation. And I, and I think that that and humble was mm-hmm. Well, and humble as well, you know that. Um, that comes with that comes with old age, as, as older age, as as I've seen. Um, but listen, the truth is, is I, first of all, I'm just sitting here and I'm absolutely amazed. Like, I'm usually jump. I'm usually the first one to jump in. I'm usually, you know, pretty vocal. Um, you know, always. You know, I had a big mouth back then. I still do, right? Um, it's you mentioned, you know, judge a book by its cover. My perception, and for the listener out there, just to really understand, you were the vocational counselor at that time. Yes. Because I remember yes. you setting me up. I mean, throughout my treatment um, stay there at Outreach House 2, we had um, many interactions. And then at the end was where I transitioned back to high school. And I got a short bus every day for about a month, a month and a half back to Massapequa High School from Brentwood. And I think that that's way, more where I developed a relationship with you because, as we all know, to transition from an inpatient program to high school is very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mother used to say like, hey, you know, you wore this jacket, you have this reputation, right? You need to break that. And unfortunately for me, uh, I wasn't able to at that time. And I would go on for many, many more years to be destructive and, you know, learn a lot about the, the things that you've talked about, about myself. Right. right. But, um, you know, one question that I have for you is you were talking about how the clients, you know, you, you helped and saved a lot of clients and, and we would often be vocal to you about that. Mm-hmm. Like Danielle, you were awesome. Cause I remember, I mean, you haven't changed as far as like personality. You were confident um, in a time where I was, you know, probably I was, you know, going through puberty, 
changing myself as a male, becoming more sexually aggressive. Mm -hmm. You showed me, and I'm thinking back on it, like what a confident woman was. And I'm sure that in my many years of developing that, you know, that that helped me, right? Because as men, sometimes we feel that we have a one-up on women. We feel, um, you know, like we're superior, right? Um, and I think that was the beginning stages of me really getting set off in the right track of the man that I became today. So I want you, I want you to know that. Um, I want to know how you feel that the client saved you. I want to know really a little more in depth about about that and, and what was that process for you and how did it not necessarily change, but probably become more powerful through your story to help push you through certain times that were difficult for you, especially in the beginning. Oh, you know, when you um, when you start in a program like that and I felt, you know, I was young, but older, obviously older than the clientele and. I thought um, I still had you speak about that confidence and yet I can remember how are they going to take me seriously? Will they take me seriously? And sometimes I remember an old supervisor saying sometimes you have to fake it until you make it. And so I always remembered also is that I wanted respect from the clients. And the only way I can remember in my life to to get respect is I have to give respect. And so I never wanted to disrespect the clients. And I think I was able to establish a good rapport. So when that level of honesty was brought forth and someone would divulge, you know, how they were truly feeling and thinking, you know, I would always then think about like, have I experienced that? Has that gone on for me? And so when he shared those desires to drink and have those urges, while, you know, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to share my thoughts and urges, but I was in a healthy enough place at that point to acknowledge the similarities and the identification that I had with the client and then share about that in my own therapy and then realize how do I get better so I can help them get better. And I think when someone is in such denial that, you know, or goes in with this cockiness as a, as a counselor or a therapist that you're already better than is when you lose the client right from the beginning. And they know that, you know, it was, I, you know, have just a little bit more experience in you. So therefore my experience has brought on more knowledge, but I'm not better than you. And so that's what held true for me that, um, that identification I had that day allowed me to really see that just because I'm the, the counselor, I'm not better than unless I really lead by example. And I never, whether you guys realized it or not, I didn't want to leave those doors and do something in my life that was against everything that I would try to teach you the next day. Because I could not be that person anymore. I was tired of living a double life. And so as I got sober and I got rid of these secrets, I didn't want to have more <laughs> in this healthy place. So if I went out and I was reckless and I um, did things, um, I thought um, they're going to know. They're going to know because you guys are like mind readers and psychics and like you would see right through mm -hmm. and, you know, I'm too like where my emotions on my sleeve. Like you knew I knew I meant no bullshit. Like I'm not, don't bullshit with me. And yet I could show that compassionate side as well. 
So, you know, that's why working even with the female clients, it was so obvious to me the hurt that sometimes they would experience, but how they would try to um, hide behind sexualizing themselves. It really meant they really felt like shit about themselves. Yeah. And I got that. You know what I mean? I really, I got that. Again, without self-disclosing, unless it was, you know, going to help them in any way. I have absolutely no idea if that answered your question or the direction you want yeah, to go no, in. Yeah, no, no. It, but it, no, that's what happens it, it, after it you have great. kids. They suck your brains. And so you're like, <laughs> I don't really know what I just said, but I think it made sense. Because it made sense Listen, in my brain. I will tell you this much. After my wife went through the pregnancy, gave birth, which was such a beautiful experience for me, um, newfound respect for women in general. I don't know, and I'm not just saying this to get brownie points, all right? All the ladies out there, I'm taken. But it's it's crazy to me how any man cannot respect a woman. But that's a whole well, that's a whole other you know episode. We'll, we won't, I won't go go down that completely. But I mean, you know, I'm uh, like, I really appreciate you being on here. Um, you know, Jim had mentioned you being on here, and I, I was just, I was like, that's fucking awesome. Like, I just oh. want it. I'm happy to get to know you better in more of an adult presence, which I've had the pleasure of getting to know Jim. Um, for you know, I'm sure we won't have a tremendous amount of adolescents listening to this, although I, I wish some parents would show them this podcast to start to get educated because it's really a perfect episode to get educated from the adolescent's point of view, which was mine at the time, um, and how an adolescent's perceptions of a perception of adults are, especially in the role that you guys played. And then vice versa. And now as an adult and dealing with the tremendous amount of responsibility, a child of my own, a wife um, that I have to be a partner to, right? Um, an equal partner, you know, provide, step up, do things um, that sometimes that, you know, generations prior thought just the woman should do, right? Um, balance my life in this aspect and be an adult. It's nice to look back and to be honest, understand that, that you guys were struggling as well. Right. Um, yeah. Just because you guys are counselors and for anybody out there that is, you know, an addict like myself who has the experience of, of you know, being with counselors and whether them they disclose they have any issues or not and where they decide to set their boundaries. You should never be the one to say, oh, you well, you just went to school for this. You never know anybody's situation. You have to respect yeah. the boundaries that whether they're going to disclose or not with you. And I was never personally or don't remember being one of those people. No. But, um, you know, you just got to you, you got to always, you know, think about what could be the possibility of it. Right. Don't judge a book by its cover, which is what you said. So, um, well, to yeah, that point, I mean, Lewis, too, it wasn't even just with the clients. It was with the staff. And Jim can, you know, attest to this and speak to this probably, I'm sure, as well. But like I as I moved up the rank, so to speak. I was one of the younger staff members and I thought like, how could I know or do more than that person who's been here for this long and how will they take me seriously? How could I supervise someone that was older than me? You know, there was always constant doubt of that. Am I going to be good enough? Am I good enough? And so, you know, it was never trying to act better than um, it was just through my education and through these experiences, I knew that I could 
rise to the occasion, but I continue to learn from all those I worked with. So whether I became a supervisor, I didn't knock those in, you know, that I supervised because I was above them. I continued to learn from them just as I learned from various clients. And then as I progressed in my own life, you know, I met my wife um, and she's a comedian. Um, and should I say, I, I, Jessica Kirsten, look her up. She's like, literally, literally, she's a comedian, right? Yeah, she's a comedian. She's a professional yeah. comedian. Yeah. She actually <laughs> has a movie coming out next month, uh, a, women, really? uh, a documentary, awesome. a women in comedy. Um, so I, we met and you know, at a time in my life, that I was like, I'm never going to meet anyone. But when I let it go uh, about this force of like trying to to meet someone and think like, where's my life going to be? And I was in my 30s and I wanted to have kids. And um, here I meet this person. I go out to a comedy show with a bunch of sober women and we hang out and we go for coffee. And that was it. Here we are married six six and change years later, together eight years, I went through in vitro, I carried. And, you know, it was fantastic. It was like going through like a Bloomingdale's catalog when you look for like a donor, you know, that's kind of, because I'm sure people have questions. <laughs> you're like, no, I don't want that color eyes. Nope, I'll go with that color hair. And, um, you know, so the three girls are all, you know, they're biologically sisters, full siblings. But my older daughter uh, was unfortunately diagnosed with a heart condition while uh, I was pregnant. And so it was very significant. The, the pregnancy, they didn't know if it was going to, you know, if I was going to continue to the end, if I'd have to terminate. Um, so going through that sober, pregnant, when all you want to do is run and hide, and then giving birth and right to the city to the hospital um and her first open heart surgery at 10 days old you know having to reflect back on all that i learned all that i had um taught all that i had listened to while in therapy and while i was in so much pain and fear and uncertainty about what was going to happen to her you know i managed to maintain the sobriety so like i feel like it's important to say because life still happens even though you get sober you know yeah. um she survived that surgery she had a stent in between she had another surgery at 22 months she was rushed back in after that surgery she was bleeding internally and I say all these things in such a way that it's like I'm reading a book because it seems like maybe I don't have the emotion, but I've done so much work around it. But I've managed to not pick up a drink over the fear and the uncertainty and the craziness because I, I choose to live in the solution. I choose to live in what can be and, and will be and have that energy surround me. And my wife feels the same. And um, it's like a comedy show every day here uh in this life uh that i live with you know five women in the house i can't even begin to tell you the amount of hormones <laughs> that exist um but you know i'm grateful that's the other thing it's about it's just about all the blessings that i do have you know shit goes wrong every day we hit a pandemic my wife's special came out in in last january and comedy central and then a pandemic hit her career was just like and now we're yeah it came you know, to a screeching halt yeah, we're in a closet with a purple curtain, you know, doing podcasts and, and Zoom shows for our career. But now things are picking up because we both have that mentality of just we're not giving up. So that and so that setup with the purple curtain is is hers. You didn't set this up just for okay. Because our logos our logos purple. 
recovery that's media podcast, unreal. you know. Yeah, that's I mean, unreal. it's just it's meant to be. I thought I was like, wow, look at that. 100%. I mean, we should we should have something like that, Jim. Look, you got windows in the back. Yeah. Was well, over there. Those gotta, blinds seen better gotta, days, huh? I got to get rid of the blinds from the from the eighties. <laughs> that my kid, that my kids have uh, have uh, ruined. You guys remember but, this uh, game, the Mike Tyson boxing game? Oh my God! Yes. Seriously? Yes, of yeah. course. Yeah, Some of pretty the cool things. He's, making, he's making fun of our age, Danielle. Even though Danielle's like probably ten years plus younger than me. It um, doesn't matter because the amount of grays that I noticed this morning, I thought, oh, my God, this is really not happening to me. Like, I can't, you know, <laughs> my daughter said to me um, this week, she said, Mom, you promised me you won't get old. And I was like, well, where did that come from? Like, <laughs> I, I said, we all get older. She goes, but then if you can't do things with me and then, like, of course, I lift her up like as if like I'm a bodybuilder. And I'm like, you know, this is why mommy works out and tries to stay in shape. And <laughs> You know, don't worry about that. So, of course, to prove a point, last Friday was like Dr. Seuss, that, you know, the yeah. theme. And I have my twins in their red wagon. And I ran, th- ran, pulling them through Franklin Square with a Dr. Seuss cat in the hat hat and red shirt through the neighborhood, you know, like like a lunatic. I probably, I'm surprised I you actually need a clip wasn't of that. up. Yeah, we need some, to show all the to- a mom said to me this morning, so my neighbor saw, said she saw a woman pulling a wagon with more than one child in a cat in the hat hat. She goes, and you came to mind. I'm like, oh, funny you should say that because that was me. Um, so I'm still out of my mind at times. Yeah, you're still crazy. Um, I love yeah. that. You only live once. You only live once. Yeah. So I want well, to actually. Wanted, I was I, hold what? on, Lewis. Hold on, because I I was thinking about this before we started, and I wasn't sure <laughs> if I was going to be able to fit it in. So speaking of crazy, and you know, me and Danielle have developed a relationship, uh, you know, a reputation in terms of, uh, you know, I was the female Danielle, and she oh, was, yeah. the, you know, the, uh, was, you know, I was the male Danielle. She was the female Jim Grant, but. Do you remember we were driving two separate vans to Splish Splash with the residents and we raced, we were racing, doing, I, I'm not even going to say how fast mm-hmm. we were going. No, probably better off. And uh, so we, we, me and Danielle both have, uh, you know, addiction problems, but also we have competitive problems oh. and we just started messing around, get one getting ahead of the other, one getting ahead of the other. And then the next thing we know, we're like. Wow, this is this is a serious race now. Yeah, well, I'm the wife of the van. <laughs> and after the fact, after the fact, I was like, "Oh my god, we we could have like something could have bad happened, and it would have." Uh... So yeah, but I think I won. I think I won. No, no, you guys should really, you, got, you know, you guys should really drop your guilt about that, right? Hundred percent. Hundred. I think we just did. Yeah, <laughs> I own that responsibility right here. Still have that. Are you oh. kidding me? I, I got this iWatch and I'm in this like fitness challenge with one of my friends and like this notification keeps coming up that she just finished another workout. And I'm like, I don't care if I have to work out until midnight and I have no sleep because my twins are like, decide like they want to get up at four o'clock in the morning. Um, I'm, I'm beating her at no matter what, like I'm winning. That's <laughs> what keeps me up. We have, me and Jim have a little competitive streak going, but I, you know, he keeps beating me on the golf course. So. Somehow, oh, happy to hear that, Jim. Look at his face. Yes. Do you see how his face just changed? He went. Yep, that's my that's my game right there. 
I'm yeah, we it. haven't stepped into any of the other sports we used to play though. That I think. Hey, I, how many times? How many times have I challenged you to a foot race and you have not accepted once? So oh. maybe you are humble. So that's. Oh, that's I will good. definitely beat you in a race, Jim. That's Listen, for sure. Jim We're doing that. This is how Jim would go, like to play basketball, like at outreach. Every finger would be taped. Up. Taped, yeah. And like for Halloween, <laughs> I think one kid was like, you know, taped his fingers and like, you know, like did like, did the Jim Grand face, and he was like, Jim I'm Jim for Halloween. Um, you know, uh, and then like he missed like a three point. Come on, it was a foul. Oh yeah. Oh, if you if if you if if his teammate missed the three point, oh, three pointer, yeah. he'd freak out. Yeah. But Jim Grant, yeah. So I, I like to see that Jim Grant hasn't changed at all. You know, in that aspect. <laughs> yeah, but, that's, um, that's not 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 a good thing. No, yeah, it's a very it's right. good thing. Amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I want to yell. I want yeah. I want to hear more. So like, I was in outreach in two thousand four, two thousand five. So that was in the beginning of your career there, essentially the first couple of yeah. years, right? Okay. Right. So where do things transform? And and if and if just correct me if I'm wrong, around the same time that you got sober, right? Yes. So um, I'm going back in the years. What year are we in? 2021. Um, 21. No, yeah, that was like so 2008. 2008. Correct. So now mm-hmm. I am like hit or miss in certain aspects of my drinking where I'm like, well, if I can complete my undergrad and do my master's before point, I obviously don't have a problem. But then starting outreach, engaging with the clients, uh, you using alcohol at night and thinking, well, everyone's allowed to go home and drink. Um, I had a long day. I had to deal with a bunch of teenagers. And that was a story I told myself. You know, um, so it was when I really committed to it was 2008. And at that point, um, it's so funny because people will be like, you're an alcoholic because, you know, I was like, why? Because you don't see me drink all the time. Or I would skip a month and not have an episode. Um, I knew at that point I didn't have to be an everyday drinker or, or a weekend warrior to prove that alcohol and I like that I had an allergy. And so sometimes I had a reaction and sometimes I didn't. And that was the hardest part for me to accept. But I also share that in meetings or when I do a share or in a beginner's meeting, because I know that's where a lot of other young people sometimes struggle in that. Like, I know I hardly drink if I do it a couple of times a year, but if every time I do it, I end up like, on someone's front lawn or somewhere where I'm not supposed to be or regretting every single decision I made, like you would think that like, you just wouldn't do that again. But I didn't have that control and I wanted to be an isolated drinker. So I didn't do a lot of drinking with like my family, even though they're drinkers, you know? So it was, that was, that was the hardest part for me to get. I don't have these same stories as some of these kids. I haven't gotten in trouble the way they have. So I must not have the problem to the degree that they have it. But as my trauma, the more I worked on my trauma, the more things came up for me, then I used the alcohol to help the feeling subside. 
And when the thoughts of other substances came to play while I had my experimentation with marijuana and stuff, I didn't really mess around with anything else. Um, I thought about it. I entertained it. And the more knowledge I started to have in working with teens and addiction and what they were using, I was like, oh, should I try that so I can better understand them? And I was like, the thought that I even had that, you know, <laughs> I was like, no, this is a problem. So I like to say that like the problem came up, I was going to kind of like act out the fantasy. And then I thought, and then what happens? You know what old sponsor used to say, like, do you really want to poke a tiger? Like you may not have your arm bit off the first time and it may not happen the second time, but on the third time you're going to be like, you know, are you willing to poke the tiger? And yeah. so for this alcoholic, I was not willing to poke the tiger or challenge my recovery anymore. You know, I just, I continue even when there's days that I'm watching Blue Bloods and I'm like, why is everyone leaving a glass of wine on the table in this show? <laughs> like, why are they? I don't know if you guys watch Blue Bloods, but like I watch Blue Bloods. Yes, I watch I Chicago I Yeah. And I'm like, every time there's like always, there's no one ever like guzzles it. And so it's usually like a flag of like, have you spoke to your sponsor today? Um, yeah. Subliminal so, messages. Oh, absolutely. And then listen. The everyday life is not easy with, you know, you think like, oh, okay, you have some kids and you maintain sobriety and life happens and you buy a house. I don't need to do meetings. Um, it's so easy to be miserable and then constantly go like, well, what's missing? Like, what am I missing? And I'm like, oh, living in the solution, like going to meetings, hearing how other people got sober. What's the message? And then people like Jim, friends like Jim, to be able to say to me, you know, realize like, well, why does he see better? I want what you have. Oh, so then you need to do what I do. You know, half measures of this nothing. I can't half ask this. Yep. I can try. And then what's the what's the result? You know, so yeah. while, and it's, while and difficult. It's, and what's so strange about people like us is we won't half, half ask the, the other things in life that we do. Right. 100%. We didn't half ass our drinking or, you know, our drug use or whatever it was. And I always tell people, like, it, it, if you're, you're expecting, you know, to get out of recovery, what you truly want, then you have to work at, at, as hard at it as you did in the other aspects of your life. Right. 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 So. So I think so you come to what I'm hearing is you come to this moment of clarity or a couple of moments of clarity that lead mm -hmm. you up to the point of really accepting this, right? right? You may not be the worst drinker in the world, um, the worst alcoholic, you know, you may not see all these consequences, but drinking is an issue for you. And I think right. that a lot of people that um, are in that position go on many more years of trying to convince themselves that they can control it, that they don't have an issue. And I talk to families all the time, especially, you know, parents with adolescents and you know, they start to tell me where their kids are and, you know, what do I think and what's my opinion of it? And I always talk to them about starting to train their adolescent in thinking a little bit differently about society. And I think that's one of the issues that comes up is like you go to college, you, you know, whatever, you know, you're, you're, you're doing sports. So surrounded around all these things is how normal it is to drink alcohol. Right. And I don't think we're going to change it anytime soon. You know, there's Budweiser co uh, commercials up for the Super Bowl and every other sporting event. 
Uh, you turn the TV on, you're bound to see something like that. So I think we have a lot of work to do as a society. But I'm curious to, to know what you think about that and how that kind of played into keeping you sick and out there for, for, for a longer period of time. You know what? It's what, um, you know, if I listened to the stories and thought and compared myself, like, we, you know, we said, like, I wasn't as, as bad. And then I looked at, you know, what was socially accepted and what was promoted and what was advertised. That's what was such conflict for me because I was like, well, then if this is so bad, why is this everywhere? Um, you know, my family events, celebrations, there's no big deal to have this, you know, family members that would be like, come on, come on, you know, that that pressure when you're out, even just like going like out to dinner, it's like, you want to drink, have a drink? No, I'm good. You know, I would try to like, no, I'm good. Come on, have one drink, have one drink. Like, Jesus Christ, did I just say no? Yeah. And so the people pleasing part of me, well, they keep asking, maybe I'm insulting them, I should have it. Despite what internally I knew, don't go there. Because the one or two I had with you in a social setting did not end when I went home. So to the average person, like, she's fine. She had one or two drinks and that was it. No, but then I got the taste and then I went home. I made a stop before I got home. Then I had more. And then I engaged in other behaviors because now I'm tipsy and now I'm like, um, um, you know, invincible. So I can do just about anything. And that's how it went. So the, you know, even like, listen, play, I finished playing college. I finished playing ball. You play softball. You're out there. Everyone's got the coolers. Who's play? Who's drinking during the games? You know. And I can remember them being sober and playing, and call up and go, "Can I have a non-alcoholic beer?" So like, you know, person recovery, and it was like, "No, you really shouldn't." I was like, "Hang up. Call the next person." Do you think it's all right if I can have? Uh, no, no. I'll never forget. I was in Amityville playing by the water. Um. No, it's not definitely not a good idea. I, I don't even know why I called. Hang up. Call the third person. Like I was desperate to find someone that was going to tell me that it was fine to have that. And then to be surrounded by friends who are like, sweet, no problem. I got a diet soda for you. I got this. Fuck this. I'm out of here. Like there's no point in saying like leaving and being miserable and all because what? I didn't get what I wanted, but I didn't drink. And I had that non-alcoholic beer because I wanted to also, that's where the people pleasing came in handy uh because i didn't want to let anyone down you know so um but then i slowly had to realize that it was all right for me to say like nope, trust me you guys don't want me to have that drink either you know much better yeah. off if i don't yeah by the time i got sober i realized that so many things were self-inflicted um that you know the false sense of that you know by by substances you know creating the false sense of of um, confidence and, you know, pushing down my insecurities and people pleasing and being worried about having that uncomfortable conversation that would have really made me feel better, right? right. Like addressing the situation saying, oh, listen, I, I don't drink and I'm proud of it, right? Or yeah. just just that little bit of sense of, of courage and whatever. Right. And, and so many things are self-inflicted and I, I think almost taught internally by us through experience and what recovery was for me was like this sense of awareness um 
and uh, um, you know a lot of the things that you've said implicate that as well. And I, you know, me knowing Jim as well as I, I've gotten to know him, I know that the same rings true for him. So I'm curious to you know hear about where your career takes off after that. You know what changes you maybe see in this in this new Danielle, um, and maybe what everybody else sees, right? And um, you know, and, and where your life goes from there. So why don't you, you share know, a little bit about So that? yeah, once, you know, once really putting full force, you know, I had the full support of everyone that I worked with that I can remember being in Florida and like, I would, you know, you kind of like stand and wait for the mail to come because like, you're just hoping to get a letter or something. I was the one getting packages from outreach, like literally baskets of Starbucks. Um, and it would be like, oh, is this from your family? I'm like, no, well, my work family because of the support, the unconditional support that I had from bosses and, you know, administrators that it was okay to go and do this. I can, I can remember calling my boss and saying like, I need to go do this and get help. And I want to be a better clinician. And this is the only way I can do that. Um, and, you know, they're recommending I leave like ASAP and him saying like, go tomorrow. I'm like, tomorrow, you know, and so my career, my trust that if I take care of me, everything else will be okay. Um, I believed it because I believed that and I saw it. And so from that point forward, upon my return, I threw myself into outreach, really. I took on any shift. I do an overnight. I didn't matter. I wasn't involved in relationships at that point. So like this was my, you know, recovery and work. I was so committed to that. Um, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to grow. Um, I wanted to prove myself. And, you know, that's what allowed me to move in different positions to not be afraid to take the next step to move up. So, you know, once taking aftercare position, you know, then I was so comfortable that when I was offered the assistant director, the clinical coordinator position, but in the other outreach in Ridgewood, I was like, oh my God, I can't leave my Brentwood family. I was there for nine years. And I can reflect back on that moment of like, if I took a risk and went away to get my sobriety, all good things could come. I may not have known it, but I had to believe it because this is what I've heard and this is what I've seen. So I had to take that same step and risk and know that I would still have my friends and family in Brentwood and, and try this new environment because sometimes we stay in the same place because it's familiar, it's comfortable, but then we're not challenged. And mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to grow. And the only way I could do that is if I made this shift. And then from that point on, I even started seeing some clients in the city and I would hop on a train from Ridgewood, see some clients in the city, rent out some office space come back to Ridgewood, do my shifts there. And then before I knew it in 2012, I was being asked to come back to Brentwood as the director. And so it came full circle that the place that I thought I wouldn't return to, here I am now going to run. And that was all because I stayed true to myself. I practiced what I preached. I did the work. I, I worked my ass off. I really did. I worked holidays. Um, you know, I, that's, you know, I knew that if I just put one foot in front of the other, like the next best, like anything would, anything could happen. And I enjoyed it. I had fun. 
I liked setting up domino tournaments in one place and softball tournaments in, in, in Brentwood and um, watching all these kids grow and who became back and wanted to volunteer and intern and seeing all these success stories. And while we had our losses, I chose to focus on those that could make it, you know, that, that did make it. And that every time we lost somebody, um, I just never wanted to give up that realm. And I left outreach on maternity leave thinking I was coming back all while being told, once you become a mother, you're not coming back. Sweeney is coming back. <laughs> but then my daughter's diagnosis came true and I was on maternity leave and um, she needed to have an emergency intervention before going for another heart surgery. I can remember speaking to my boss and my daughter had to, uh, she had a stent and upon being discharged, a nurse came in the room a couple of times and I'm like, something's wrong. Like something, why do they keep coming back in the room? They're supposed to be discharging us. She had developed a blood clot. She's five months old at this point. Thank God they found the clot. And so she had to be given shots, injections uh, twice a day to remove the clot. And it was that deciding factor that I sat in her room, called that same boss, just the way I did when I had to go away to treatment and say like, this is what I need to do for me. I need to be home with my daughter. I can't leave her in somebody else's hands and have them give her shots and do this and not know mm -hmm. when her next surgery is going to be. I'm supposed to be here. And he was like, you're right. That's exactly where you're supposed to be. And so once again, made that transition. And yet my passion was doing therapy. So once I decided to stay home with her, I was like, well, why couldn't I see clients? And so that started for me. And I started seeing clients privately and specializing with adolescents and young adults. And I've had my share of 10 year olds and 11 year olds. I have a couple of 15 and 16 year olds now because I love their, I love the challenge that they give to me. You know, some people like you yeah. choose to work with teens, like still. <laughs> what are you like, crazy? You working with an adult. I'm like, I would totally take a 15 year old cursing me out than an adult giving me an attitude because the adult I want to punch in the face. But the kid, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. They're an adolescent. Like, bring them, yeah. you know, I could take right, it. Right where they're supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to bring you back just, just for a second because I think it's so important for people to hear. Um, number one is, your experience with calling your boss and making the decision to get away from everything that's comfortable to just focus on Danielle. How important was that? Oh my, I could, I just got goosebumps. No joke. Um, Cause I can remember sitting there having a glass of wine while I called because it was the only way I could call the different placement to find out where I could get in. And <clears throat> when I was asked like, when was your last drink? I'm like, I'm having one now. Uh, it's the only way I can call you. But I don't think like if I didn't get that support, like I was just petrified that everything I'd worked for in school that I would lose it if I didn't take care of myself. But then I'm like, well, how I'm going to lose it anyway. So to have like an employee assistant program, an EAP program, to be able to say to someone like, okay, you have a problem. Like, what is the difference if I turned up and said, I was just diagnosed, God forbid, with cancer and I need to go for chemo regimen or I'm a diabetic and I need to take insulin. These are the special, um, you know, accommodations that I need to receive. Like I'm, I have a disease and I need to address it. And if I don't address it, I could die or kill somebody else. Yeah. And so 
but we look at mental health and addiction like it's taboo, like someone doesn't have it. And I'm like, anytime someone does that, it's just because obviously I hit a cord and, you know, they can't look at themselves. So having that support from my boss till this day that I could call him for anything, um, you know, was was monumental in taking the next steps. Because at that point, I realized, um, you know, if I could just be responsible, and that's what he saw, I was trying, I was just trying to be responsible. I didn't want to be caught in something or do something or fuck up and then say, have someone else say to me, like, maybe you should go get some help. Because then I thought, well, would I still be welcome back? Like, how much would I mess up? But then I can remember being with those employees that I had to supervise who needed help. And it was like, go get the help before the situation comes worse, and we'll be here to support you. You know, so yeah. working in the recovery field, like, how could we reach out to these teens and adolescents? And of course, outreach helps, you know, a variety of populations from young adult to adult, um, women, children, you, you, you name it, they, they provide the services that they would deny me that opportunity. They, they could have, I mean, they could have said here, no problem, go get the help. And then just, you know, maybe not have my position when I returned, but they welcomed me yeah. with open arms. And there's also protection these days of, you know, FMLA and, and federal mm -hmm. laws that see, you know, addiction as a, um, as a mental health disorder, which, oh, you know, leads to being required and, and allotted the time to take off. Uh, to get well. So, I mean, I, I deal with it on a daily basis and I really just want to point out how courageous it is for you, for anybody to step into that space of, of knowing that you need help and not making any excuses not to get it, right? Because people could say, well, I could lose the job or the, you know, my, my significant other or whatever excuses they want. But what I always tell people is the excuses that you come up with, if you really look at them and you're really honest, they should be their excuses for you to go get help. Right. Because in turn, you have the possibility of keeping those things long term. So absolutely. Um, and being and, and and reminding yourself that, you know, just because you may not be able to physically see it, like, you know, they do a scan and they don't see, you know, they see a spot and then you could see like, oh, I need to have this chemo because this is what came up. Like you are physically causing consequences within your life affecting, you know, organ, you know, based on drinking, whatever you're doing that. So you're going yeah. to create other medical issues, but mental health, when someone expresses depression or anxiety or other coexisting disorders, it's like, it's, it's just not as accepted because they don't always see it. You the can't same way. see it. Correct. You can't see it physically, right. you know, it's not on a scan or. Right. Or but if like I punch that. you in the face and then tell you about an anger issue, then obviously you can probably see it. You, you, you can know. see it. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Yeah. I've used that example a couple of times. You know, you call up your boss and you tell him that you need to take time, you know, and be home, spend time being a mom, um, which is amazing. And at what point did you feel comfortable to venture off into your own practice? You know, I saw a couple, you know, one or two people that, um, you know, were pretty steady. And I thought like, okay, this, this will work. I'll just do this and be home with my daughter. And then as my daughter got involved in, you know, two programs and three's program, sometime a little bit of time freed up because my wife traveled a lot for, for, you know, and still travels. She just left today for Washington state. Um, 
And so I thought like, I'm supposed to not have someone else be with Isabella. You know, I have to be there. And then it was like, oh, wait, no, I, I, I can work too and do this. But again, because then being out of the game for a little bit, I thought, what happens if I'm not good enough? What happens if I'm not, you know, as, um, as well polished and groomed as I had been because I'm out of the scene for a little bit, but I knew what skills I had and I knew that um, I was still willing to continue to learn and grow and I continue to take courses around my license. So it became like word of mouth really because I don't even, I haven't, I don't advertise via social you know, media. Um, I haven't put anything else out there. It was just through word of mouth where I have like, nine clients right now and even via pandemic like i do all zoom or facetime and around being a mom as well as you know being a therapist because i love it um you know been able to do work with some families and other siblings of the kids that i've seen so that's how it that's how it's progressed um so I lived in an apartment building previously and within the apartment building, they had like a uh, business office. So I was able to utilize that for office space and it worked because when I would see younger kids, like eight years old, nine years old, they would have like a community room where we play pool. So I would incorporate social activities with them mm-hmm. um, because I felt like I, I, I didn't want to have this like white coat syndrome that like, you know, to be, um, threatened against because I was still focusing on a lot of younger kids. And so we bought this house uh, almost a year ago, right as the pandemic hit. And then I thought, well, now I'm, I can't rent other office space now. Now maybe this will just, you know, plummet. And it did just the opposite. And so while it's hard at times, like who's going to be crying or looking for me or whatever, I mean, I do make sure I have someone here actually watching the kids. Um, that would probably not be a good idea to leave 21-month-old twins unattended. But my daughter's in school, my five-year-old daughter, she's in kindergarten. And so I have learned that I can show her how you can do both. Like I can, you know, be with her and show up during those important times and be present the way my mom was who picked me up from school and had snack time and had dinner made. And I pride myself on those things. And so, you know, then I, I kind of fill in the spaces around it. So like today I have three more sessions later on in between, you know, snack time, homework time, bath time. And then sometimes like at 9.15 when everyone's asleep. So, you know, you, you, you make it work. Yeah. I think and that's, that's all my ability to, that's all a testament to who you are, Danielle. and and balancing, making it work, staying committed to, you know, your, your initial cause, which is to make a difference in the world and focus on, you know, helping and supporting, you know, the young people who, who need it, whether, you know, more than ever, but, you know, most definitely need it. And, um, you know, and I also want to acknowledge you for your courage and, and vulnerability, even in sharing, you know, your, your your past and your your childhood and um you know the 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 sexual abuse the trauma the even even it's a lot of people don't are are uncomfortable sharing about the the thoughts I'm not good enough and and you know that's the other message here is that 
And I think you mentioned it. Oh, yeah, like the secrets, you know, and yeah. the more that we keep inside, the more that we, we hide, the more it, it uh, you know, it, it kills us and hurts us and, and then starts affecting, you know, people and things around us. So, you know, I really appreciate and, and, and love you very much. And I love we, you. And thank you for being here. So, thank you for having so me. One, of course, one final thing. So, so how do how does someone find you? You know, I'm on Facebook, but I I don't I'm not friends with any of the clients that I have. It's really been through word of mouth, and I should probably put myself on some other professional pages. Psychology Today, you know. Yeah, and I think when you when you're ready for that, because the f first thing I want to say is you're definitely good enough. If there is anybody out there, you know, as long as Danielle can take you on as a client and uh, and her schedule permits it, if you want a therapist that could create rapport that is real, um, that brings a humanized approach to therapy, from what I remember, right? Mm -hmm. Then that would so be do. so. I definitely think you're good enough when you're ready and you have all those. You let us know. In the meantime, I think for the listener, if anybody is interested in speaking with Danielle, they could contact us. Absolutely. And we can buy my you email. Know, bridge, bridge the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I'd welcome that. Just to go over for you and the listeners out there to <clears> remind <throat> them, you know, Recovery Media um, originally didn't start as a podcast. That is in addition. Right. And the idea behind it was. There's a lot of competition, unfortunately, in the industry, whether it's there between therapists and treatment facilities. And, you know, I, I'm at the point in my um, in my career where I wanted to do something different and I wanted there to be a centralized location for people to reach out uh, for, you know, any any resources that we provide on the podcast as well. So kind of cool concept. Right. We have, you know, although I own my own treatment centers. Um, it doesn't matter if you're fit for my treatment centers. That's great. But if not, where else can we help you to get? What are the resources can we provide? If you're just looking for local therapy, um, whether it be an outpatient or a private therapist, what can we help you find? Right. So that's the idea behind it. And um, yeah, it's been growing uh, slowly but surely. So if you have any ideas you ever want to let us know about or any other, you know, people that are in the industry or that have resources or have, you know, a story of recovery doesn't always have to be from addiction. That was the other right. thing I want. Jim and I wanted it to be um, to be able to go outside of that because everybody's recovering from something. Right. Is we believe. So, um, yeah, and again, we already know that addiction forms in so many facets. It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol, you know. Um, exactly. Yeah, and not to be shameful about it, you know? I mean, I yeah. have an addition to some sneakers, but no, that's besides the point. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm and in the in the same uh, in the same message, being able to provide me with any of the programs that you currently are affiliated and work and, and run so that I have those resources to be able to give to other people that I'm currently working with would be fantastic. Just of add it to the list because uh, unfortunately there can never be enough uh, treatment centers out there and especially those Agreed. with good reputations. Yep, I agree. 
Couldn't so agree with I that am more. so grateful to have been part of this process and part of with you guys and me like a to be continued because just need to check in and see more and how you're doing in your life. And Jim, I can always call you. It's fine. You know, yeah, yeah, I, know yeah. where you, I know where you live. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Love All right. So we'll let you go, Danielle. Sweeney Thank, you. Thank you so much. Appreciate Thank it. you, Danielle. Have a great day. Thank you for having me. It's just us, brother. Woo. Yeah, that was um that was incredible of her. Awesome. Starting off, it's like I'm thinking about my time in outreach, my experience with her, what role she played and you know, and then uh you hear that whole story and it's just so much more. It's so much more to it. Yeah. And it makes more sense of like what role she played there. And then relating it to your circumstance of what you've shared with me before, you know, being in a position where you didn't necessarily want to come off like that. You had to, it was like more like a learned behavior for you at, at outreach, you know? Well, we were even, you know, we, we've talked about self-disclosing in, in the past where, and I don't know currently if, they teach it the same way in terms in terms of like in, in counseling school or whatever. But like we were literally taught, you do not self-disclose. You only self-disclose, you know, to benefit the client, you know, and that's like 1% of the time. So I was there, I was there 15 years or 17 years or something like that. And, uh, I, I only disclosed that I, that I, uh, you know, was reco in recovery one time to one client. And, um, so, so even, was, that even the the, the was that against the grain for you? Or, I mean, I know obviously anonymity is important in the AA program, which you've been in for, you know, 30 years now. So like, was that difficult for you at times to see a kid struggling and, and, and know that maybe you did want to disclose or did you, were you always comfortable? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I, I think, you know, and I evolved as, as a counselor through the years, even just from experience. And then once I took the self-discovery workshops, I even become a, became a better counselor. Um, but then I became confident and comfortable in that, you know, in that, uh, I didn't need to, you know, I, I could, I could support them and help them. And of course, there's always, there was always a question, you know, is this more about, hiding behind don't self-disclose or is it really authentic to not professional you know? yeah professional and um yeah so we much more we could talk about. maybe we could do like a lunch or something just get to know her better i mean it's so it's so funny she really has regardless of where she was at and then finding recovery after i was there right um she has that same personality and what was important to me, and I hope the listener picked up, is although she could come off like that, she's not always feeling that way, right? She doesn't always feel that way about herself. And in the work that she mm -hmm. did for herself, it's she's been more consistent in that. Where what she speaks, she backs up, right? And personally, and you know, as far as um, what her personality is. So I thought, oh that yeah, was and that's the. You know, and, I, and I, I was smiling when she said how how much it saved her because remember I told you that you know that I was there to you know to to I you know like the client was there they were lost they needed help and and then I shared I was lost 
you know, I was, yeah. you know, whatever age, age I was still looking, you know, still trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. And, yeah. you know, that's the, you know, with what you just said about Danielle, that's the, that's the beauty of, and the power of being in service. You know, when you're, when you're a counselor of any kind or, or, or a therapist or, you know, what you do, me as a coach that we're in service to others. So, and you learn from that, that that's the, also the selfish part about being in that role that, and we talk about it as even in our mission at, through this podcast, you know, our initial intention is to support, inspire others, but we get so much back, you know, from, from it. Yeah. And, and then that's, that's, and that's the other also, uh, in the, in, in the beginning, surprising thing about when you're coaching, when you're, you know, a therapist or a counselor or, you know, or, uh, or anything else in that, in that realm, you know, she was confronted with her own drinking, her own, you know, obsession, her own, you know, her own thoughts around, you know, wanting to drink. And a lot of people deny that and, and do become and stay hypocrites and then get further into their, their addiction or, or, you know, or, uh, you know, destructive behavior. And yeah. so thankfully for me, me, you and her, we, uh, we finally, finally got it and continue to stay on this path. Yeah. I think it's also super important to highlight the fact that outreach, her employer at the time was so supportive of her going away. Um, I think every empl employer should be held to that same standard because a lot of people are so terrified about losing their job or, you know, what can happen for that or how they'll be looked at. Um, meanwhile, they just need help, you know, and she mentioned something so valid, God forbid you would have cancer or diabetes or another, you know, liver disease or something that you needed to address. You wouldn't even get second guessed about that. You wouldn't get questioned. You wouldn't, you know, it would be like, yeah, of course, take your time. And a lot of employers are great. So let me mention that as well, where they, yeah do a lot, you know, they do support you. But, um, you know, we have a whole um, slideshow on, you know, um, substance abuse and alcoholism in the workplace and, you know, how employers can be supportive and stuff. So if there is anybody that's listening, that's interested in, in learning more about that and, and what they're, uh, um, you know, what time they're allowed to take off and what systems are put in place, they're more than they could I mean, be more than happy to reach out to us and, and we could go over that. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Cause that's what it's about too. That's what, that's what I was thinking of when you guys were talking about mental health in terms of, you know, what, what we don't understand, we dismiss. So what we don't understand, we, we form a very, very narrow opinion about and, you know, and then throw in the whole stigma that, that you are so passionate about in terms of, uh, you know, there's, there's a stigma around addiction. There's also a stigma around around mental health because, or even just what it looks like. You know, someone yep. who acts out in public in some way, people just like, who, what the hell is wrong with that person? Or, or they make up, you know, whatever it is, and and it, like on face value, they're just they're just someone that has problems, or they're just being a an asshole or whatever. But meanwhile. You know, you don't know what's going on for people, and yeah. and and that goes back to you know everyone is struggling with something and challenged with something, and uh, and then we're offering that no matter what that is, you have the you have the possibility and the the opportunity to recover from anything.
Yep. 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 Couldn't agree more. So what a great episode. Right, yeah, my friend. Getting, getting together with Danielle Sweeney. Um, yes. And with that, we'll conclude another great episode of Recovery Media Podcast. Guys, you know where to reach us. You can get us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, uh, at Recovery Media. If you need us, you could message us on the page. We're always available. There's also a number attached on there. Feel free to call and you'll always get somebody. We have a 24-hour hotline. And don't forget Laguna View Detox in California. Laguna View Detox is, is one of my, my Jim Grant programs. Yes, Jim Grant, Jim Grant Coaching uh, on Facebook. And uh, however we can support you, whether it's through us or around us, we are here for anybody. Love you guys. Take care. You can find us on social media at the Recovery Media Podcast. And of course, download, rate, review, and subscribe wherever great podcasts are found.